0: Maybe if Noah's wife told the story, it would go something like this. Every time I hear the rain begin to fall in the night or smell the odor of the damp earth that precedes a summer shower, memories come flooding back. I thought Noah had gone mad. I had married and born sons to a crazy man. I said, when he began to build that big boat, what now, you gonna take up fishing, maybe? You're 600 years old, Noah. The man's name literally means rest, but I can tell you he hasn't given my nerves any rest in all the time I've known him. So I asked, not fishing? Then why the big boat? He said, he said God told him to build it. What, now the creator of the universe needs a yacht to sail around on? It's not for God, Noah told me, it's for us. Now, what do we need a boat for? A beach house, yes, but there's not a beach within miles of here. But a boat, there's no water, Noah. The Noah sat by the fire in his rocking chair one night and told me the whole story. God had come and God had said the whole creation would be destroyed by the flood because it hadn't turned out the way that God had intended It was part of God's righteousness, this flood. When people kept doing whatever they wanted, when people kept taking whatever they wanted, whether it belonged to them or not, and settling every dispute with a rock to the head or a knife to the ribs, God just got fed up. The whole creative process was a washout, and God was going to clean everybody up with a bath like you'd never seen before. Didn't you try to change God's mind, I asked, since the cure seemed at least as bad as the disease. No, Noah told me. It was just that God's voice sounded so sad, so very disappointed. Besides, if God doesn't know when to call it quits, then who does? I must admit, God, looking at creation, had a point. Why ain't you, Noah? Why us? Noah said he didn't know since we weren't any different than anyone else. But but Noah was wrong there, you see. Noah was, he was being humble. You see, Noah, Noah would never take anything that didn't belong to him, and he wouldn't hurt a flea. He was a good man. A bit quirky sometimes, but a good man indeed. The kind of man that could even feel sorry for God. So after the rain, it wasn't long until the beautiful hills and valleys became nothing but gray sky and dark water. And my grandchildren would ask, how long was the voyage, Grandma? How long? And I'd tell them forever, it seemed, to this very day when the clouds roll in dark and thick and the smell of rain is thick in the air. Those old feelings came rushing back. Then I remember God said, never again. Never again, and i look at a rainbow. What do we learn from this ancient story of Noah and his family? First of all, sin is serious and knows no boundaries. Sin is serious and knows no boundaries. By the time we come to our passage in Genesis chapter 6, We've already experienced that first sin of Adam and Eve. We've already had that first murder of Cain killing Abel in a moment of anger and a moment of jealousy. We've had Lamech declaring as he swung his sword that he would bring revenge like revenge had never been seen before. At the beginning of chapter six, we have that strange story as the son of God, the sons of God divine-like beings, angelic beings, are intermarrying with earthly women, breaking the boundaries of creation between the angels and humanity with every desire of wickedness. The stain of evil, therefore, had become so perversive on earth that now it was contaminating the entire cosmos, not just the created earth. What began as a simple act of eating fruit has evolved into a universal disaster. And God must act to stop the disaster. Well, look at verse 5 of chapter 6. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, that's depravity. Every intent is bad, only evil all day long. Verse 11, same chapter. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. How want you to know that word violence. The earth was filled with violence. Look at verse 13, uses the word again. And the earth is filled with violence. Violence is the word used for injustice and corruption. Is there any end to humanity's search for evil and power and violence? There was a, a few years ago a report about a new trend among teenagers. is called, and I quote, bum hunting. It's a perverse trend. Across the country, packs of teenage boys are stalking homeless people and attacking them, shooting them with paintball guns for sport, beating them with baseball bats, even dousing them with gasoline and setting them on fire. Violence against the innocent. You see, since people on the streets don't report crimes, usually we really have no stats to tell us how pervasive this perversion really is. But take the case of 53-year-old Michael Roberts. He was killed in Holly Hill, Florida. Four teenage boys, as young as 14 through age 18, confessed to the crime. They stumbled across Roberts in the woods, and they, for three hours they beat him until he died. They took turns. Jeffrey Spurgeon, the oldest assailant, says, the main thing I I can't keep out of my head is that I keep thinking 24-7 is Michael asking for help and begging us to stop and screaming for help. In the days of Noah, it was violence against the innocent, violence against the helpless. Congregation, we live in a culture where some label ripping an infant from his mother's womb as health care. When I think about health care, I think about the word health, wellness, and life, and vitality. When I think about the word care, I think about concern and making one better and at least doing no harm. So what part of abortion is actually health care? Ask the baby patient how she thinks about that term Healthcare, violence. In fact, we saw just this week in Amarillo Globe News that according to the FBI, the Amarillo is the fourth most dangerous city in the state of Texas with 8.36 violent crimes per 1,000 people in 2021 and with, are you ready, a 40% increase in homicides over the last 12 months. Right here in Amarillo, 40% increase in homicides. God bless and protect our police as they try to keep us safe. And what we're discovering is a dangerous city. After all the evil intentions, after all the violent expressions, the creation has refused to be God's creation. The essential fracture between creator and creation has occurred. And the flood narrative comes. Man was violent and man was evil. Not only does sin know no bounds, but secondly, God grieves. God grieves. Now, some of you aren't going to like this one because you want to think of God in preconceived categories, regardless of the testimony of Scripture. I don't think we have a right to recreate God so that He meets our own expectations. I think the only right way to know God is through God's revealed word, which God leaves us for us to discover who he is. There is no other way to read this story or a lot of Old Testament stories or New Testament stories without coming to the conclusion that God responds to the choices, the free choices of humanity. Look at verse six. And God was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Verse 7 says again, God says, I am sorry that I created humanity. For some reason, many believers are threatened by a God who grieves and responds. A God who's dynamic and not static in his decisions. Somehow we find that kind of God unreliable. Maybe because we find that kind of God unpredictable. Which then, then again leaves God in control, and not we ourselves. Perhaps that's what scares people who won't be honest with the text about this grieving, responding, dynamic God. We reject that notion sometimes, that God could grieve, that God could dynamically respond to humanity's free choices. What we're really afraid of is that we ourselves can't control a God like that, a God who responds based on how we act. We want God to act robotically and predictably. We want God, the kind of God, who will stick to the rules that we've made about who he is and what he can and cannot do. But God will not be controlled by our our expectations, our categories, our pigeonholes. The God of Scripture is God. He is creator, and we are creation, and he can change his mind if he wants to. And he certainly doesn't need our permission to do so. God in this story sees humanity for what it has become. The conjuring daydreams, the self perceptions of the world are tilted against God's purpose. God is aware that now in creation, this something because of sin is deeply amiss. And God's dream for creation has no prospect of fulfillment. And as a result in this story, God shows a deep pathos. God is grieved, and God is sorry. God is saddened by creation's rebellion against him. This is the point of Genesis. The man and woman have pain, and now all the way by chapter 6, God has pain. God knows the pain that the people know. We can't honestly have a God who is unchanging and indifferent to anything going on in this world as though He were a plastic-fixed robotic entity. No, the God of Israel isn't like that at all. The God of Israel responds. He hears the cries of His people, and He reacts to their cries. He hurts, and He celebrates, and He's dynamic. He acts the God of Scripture with remarkable freedom. God is not held captive to old resolves or contemporary theology. God is as fresh and new in the relation to creation, and he calls us to be with him. He can respond. He can abandon what he's made, as he does here, and he can send a flood, or he will send a fire. God wills his creation to be turned toward him, but he doesn't command it, and the creation has rebelled And the God of the Old Testament is not beyond the capacity of feeling pain and sorrow and chagrin and remorse. In fact, if you have a King James Bible, in uh, chapter 6, verse 7b, it says, I regret I made him. The King James says, God repenteth or God repents. That verb is used in the Old Testament 48 times that God regrets or repents. God's changing dynamically to His, the responses of humanity. And of the 48 times in the Old Testament, 34 times it's used as God as a subject. God is very dynamic in the Old Testament. God is sorry, and God regrets, and God repents because of the bad choices of humanity. And when God changes His mind, The resolution is firm and severe. Verse 7, God says, I'm going to blot out. I'm going to destroy, verse 13. Verse 17, I'm going to destroy. And 723, again, I will blot out. Blot out, destroy, destroy, blot out. Have you ever noticed it? That God is the one who shuts the door on the ark, protecting Noah and his family from the punishment of the flood and the door is clanged shut on the ark, the rest of humanity and creation is doomed to the results of sin. Like humanity of old, today we assume we have all the time in the world to live in our present sin. And then out of nowhere in this story, the flood comes and it's too late. The door of opportunity, God, God himself shuts the door on the ark and we're left separated from God in our sin. Look at chapter 7, verse 16. Chapter 7, verse 16. And those who entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God has commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth. The God himself, the Lord, closed the door on the ark and there was punishment on the outside and as we'll see, grace on the inside. Turn over to Matthew chapter 24 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 37. When Jesus is speaking at Matthew 24 and he's trying to tell us what his coming judgment on the world will be like, Of all the paradigms that the Christ could pick, he picks, he chooses, he picks the paradigm of the flood. Look at Matthew 24, 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until that day Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. When the flood came, Jesus is saying, man, humanity was living in sin, each doing what was right in his own eyes or her own eyes. And then God shut the door. It was over. Too late to repent. It will be like that day when Jesus returns, Jesus says. It'll be like the days of Noah. We are living our lives, our own selfish lives. We're marrying and giving in marriage. We're going out of our business. We're we're ignoring God and doing things our way. Like that, like the day of Noah, will be the day of judgment when Jesus comes. When Jesus comes and shuts the door the final time. Well, there's a third thing I want you to see. Back to Genesis, Noah found favor with God. Despite the seriousness of sin... God is always a God of grace. In the first story, Adam and Eve, we had the direct sin of disobedience, eating forbidden fruit from the tree. But God gives him clothes of animal skin as an act of his grace. Sin always leads to death, but in this case, it wasn't their death, but the death of an animal. The skin was used to make the clothing. And even in the story of Cain and Abel, even though God sent Cain away to the land of Nod, God gives a mark of mercy even on the first murderer. Even in the punishment, there's always a thread of grace. And in this third story, we have not only sin and judgment, but once again, in the ark and Noah and family and the animals, we have a measure of God's grace. however small it may seem, given the catastrophic nature of the flood, it's real. it's grace. God is at work, saving the humanity that He's created to start all over again. Where do we find that grace? Look at verse eight, "But Noah found favor in God's eyes. There's the grace all of creation except what's on the ark is going to be destroyed. God looks and God regrets his creation. God is sorrow, he is grieved, sorrowful and grieved. And yet, but Noah. But Noah was the one who was righteous. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Even though every thought is wicked and every way is wayward but Noah found favor in the eyes and the sight of God even in the days when there was a crazy creation with the angels intermarrying with humanity and the cosmos and the boundaries are all broken and there's so much violence but Noah Noah walked with God look at verse 18 God says I will establish my covenant with you Noah And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Look at verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. 7-1. God speaks to Noah, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. In a time of faithlessness, Noah was the one who was faithful. 7-5. Noah did all according to the way God commanded him. Seven, nine. Noah does all that God commands him. Eight: one. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle were with him in the ark. When we come to this dismal story that is full of pain, we come to Noah, and Noah is possibility. Yes, there's pain, but there's also grace and possibility. But Noah found favor. Had you ever noticed this a story? I had not. Noah doesn't say a word. That's not usually the act of a patriarch. You know, if it had been Moses, he would have told God the reasons he wasn't the one to build the ark, right? If it had been Abraham, he would have tried to strike a bargain with God and change the rules and how many people have to be righteous, you see? But Noah doesn't bargain with God. Noah doesn't even speak All Noah does is everything that God commanded him. We're told that three times, 622, 75, 79. God commands, Noah does, and that's it. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts. Chapter 8, verse 17, God says to Noah, Bring out every living thing and all the flesh with you, the birds, the animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. Chapter 9 is said three more times, be fruitful and multiply. You see what's happening here? It's a, a recreation story. You remember the beginning of creation that Adam and Eve were told to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. And now we have a righteous man, Noah and his family. They're on the boat. And God, it's a recreation story. Sin had broken it all, so God starts over again. And God says to Noah, like God said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply. Three times repeats the Adam story. Be fruitful and multiply. It's a story of grace and recreation. Fourth and finally... In the midst of judgment and grace, we are to respond in worship. God planned on on being worshiped. God told him to bring extra animals for the sacrifice. You see, what's the right response when God has spared us by his grace? The right and only response is worship. That's why we're here today. Because God is a judging God and God is a God of grace and God has sent Christ to bear his wrath on our behalf and the right response in our lives when God spares with his grace is a rhythm of worship. God gave grace to Noah and Noah worships. And God through Christ has given grace to us and we worship. God planned to be worshiped. Let no one ever before Noah saw both the wrath of God and the redemption of God. No one before had seen all creation destroyed and some creation saved like no one else before. He saw how bad God's wrath could be and how good God's grace was. And as a response, Noah worships. How about you today? Are you waiting too long in your life of sin? Christ will come back like it was in the days of Noah. They were surprised by the flood. They were going on with their daily lives, and all of a sudden, God shuts the door of the ark. There's no more chance at God's grace or God's redemption. And when Jesus picks a paradigm to say, when the final judgment comes, he says, it'll be like the days of Noah. Everybody's busy going about their lives, and Christ will come as a surprise like the flood, and the door will be shut, and no opportunity for God's grace. just like it was in the story of Noah. Jesus says it's going to happen again. Read the story. Know the story. And God has given us his grace not to just one family but God has given his grace through Christ to all nations that anyone who will say Jesus is Lord, that God's wrath is satisfied on the cross on our behalf, and we're in the ark, the doors clang shut, and because we've said Jesus is Lord, and we've confessed our sins, we are saved and we're righteous in God's eyes. Not righteous because of any good deeds we do. Righteous because we belong to the righteous one, the crucified and resurrected Christ. Maybe you're watching on live stream this morning or maybe you're watching on television or maybe you're here in this great sanctuary and this was God's word for you today. The day is coming when the doors will close again. You need to be on the inside of the ark. There'll be no warning. The rain will start falling. The Son of Man will come. It will be over. Today is a day of God's grace. Let's pray. Oh God, there's some in this room and some watching by television who need to say this morning, I'm a sinner like all those in the day of Noah, and I need the crucifixion of the Christ on behalf of my sins. I need the power and the glory of the resurrection. I need the grace of God. Maybe you just need to whisper a prayer right where you are. God, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. I want to be inside the ark. I want the grace of God that comes through professing Jesus Christ as Lord. Oh, God, I know that you're righteous and you can't overlook sin. God, I know you're righteous and you can't overlook sin. But let Christ, let his death be my death. Let him pay for my sin, the greatest gift ever. And may the power of his resurrection be our eternal life. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.